The truth is that the reason we do what we do, the reason that the church exists, the reason mission exists, is because 2,000 years ago, Jesus took that humble march or that humble ride on a donkey into Jerusalem to fulfill the promises made to Israel to begin this revolution of love, to call to himself a people who would be his love to the world. And so that is the reason we are who we are, that we do what we do, okay? So let me pray and then we'll get started. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for what it represents. We thank you... um, And we recognize that you didn't just send your son to die on a cross um, to save us to this theoretical place in the sky. But rather you sent your son to die on a cross and you started this movement in which you were going to make all things new. And you were going to call to yourself a people who would get to participate in that. And that's what it means to be saved, that, that we're not just exiting this earth one day, but we are we are part of this movement with you and we. We humbly say thank you for letting us be a part of that. And so, Father, as we finish out Philippians today, as we move into this new, uh, this, this new season of Austin New Church, um, I just ask you to guide us. I ask you to, as you have helped us do the last four years, I ask you to uh, help us not be about our own agenda, but about your agenda and just following uh, what your Holy Spirit is already doing. We love you and we glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen. to go ahead and wrap up um, book of Philippians. For those who are visiting, we've been in the book of Philippians since the beginning of the year, and uh, it, just so, it just so happens that this, this last part of the chapter lands on, and I'll get into this a little bit later. For those who don't know, we are starting a very new season in who we are as a church, um, and so it's, it's great that this book ends on what really is the last Sunday of our old normal if you will, okay? But so, so here's what I want to do. We're just going to go through the text relatively quickly, and then we're going to um, just chat a little bit on, on what I think Paul is saying that might be specific to where we have been and where we are going, okay? But before we do that, I want to give, and this was probably done, I don't even remember, this was probably done at the beginning of the book, but I want to give a little historical and contextual backdrop. And and here's why. Because if you are going to go in the business of opening up a Christian fortune cookie store, you go to the book of Philippians. Because Philippians has probably more one-liners that are taken out of context than any other book in the Bible. Are, are you with me? I mean, because like today, we're going to cover the, the passage that says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. I have seen that verse on the back of marathon shirts more than I've read it in the Bible. But Paul was not talking about running a race. I have seen people claim that verse over tests they're going to take that they didn't study for. Yeah, but Paul's not talking about exams that you don't study for. I have seen people claim that verse on um, selfish things that they are going after in life, whether that's a big house, a job promotion. Um, I'm not saying those things are bad, but that's not what Paul was talking about. Okay? And so what, what I kind of want to do, because the passage that we're dealing with today has three of those one-liners or three of those texts 
crammed in there. And so I just kind of want to re-identify what Paul might have been saying and then, and then move on and look at that through the context of who we are. So here's what we know from the text. I think some of this is in your notes um, to tell us a little bit about Philippians. Philippians, according to Acts 16, was one of the most influential and prosperous cities in its district. And all the district that, that, uh, that Philippians was in, in and of itself, it was, kind of, it was kind of the Mecca. It was the place that the bad economy didn't affect, if you will. Okay? Um, but, here, but here's another thing. It was very, a very polytheistic, spiritual city. Very spiritual. It wasn't, wasn't atheistic. It was very spiritual. In fact, what we know about um, is that when Paul starts this church in Philippi, he can't find a synagogue. Now, the reason that's kind of important is because if you read the rest of the New Testament, the way Paul typically started a church was he looked for the local synagogue for, for two reasons. One, it's what he knew from his past. But two, he knew you could not understand the story and the mission of Jesus without understanding the story and the history of Israel. He knew that one was the completion and fulfillment of, and you never could completely get it until you had that. So he had a base in a synagogue that he could begin with. He didn't have that in Philippi. So it kind of messed with his methodology. He had to kind of start with something new. In fact, what we know, I think it's in chapter 16 of Acts, is where it tells us the backdrop. Because when he goes to Philippi, since he can't find a synagogue, he just looks for a religious place where people are praying. Because he understands at least they have this idea of this other, this, this uh, supreme being of some sort. And so he goes there and begins to, to work with them on their ground. But it's, it's not the monotheistic location that he's normally used to. And then also, uh, Philippi is a very proud and diverse setting. Now, here's what... Uh, Let's we'll talk a little bit about the historical setting. According to, according to uh, history, and then according to Acts 28, Paul wrote this letter while in prison. Brandon's brought that up several times. Paul is not writing this from a place of power. He's not writing this from a place of uh, any sort of pleasure or any sort of promotion. He is writing this at one of the lowest places of his ministry ever. Well, at least that's what we would see if we saw a man in prison. Okay? And now, according to church traditions, not only is he writing this from prison, but he also, and I think Paul recognizes this, he is probably about two years from his death. In fact, Paul, the way this whole uh, thing works out is back in Acts 21, Paul is getting ready to make his last move in Jerusalem, and he's getting ready to go in. He knows the people are hot at him. And in fact, a guy steps up to prophesy and says, don't go in there. They're going to arrest you, and it all goes downhill from there. So Paul knows this, and he says, if this is what God wants, this is what he wants, and I'm going anyway. And he goes in and gets arrested, and this is when this journey into prison begins. Not only that, Paul in some of his other letters from the same prison writes words like, my life is being poured out. My, I, I'm on my way out. This, this is it. And so history tells us he probably is released from this prison. And then, and then a couple of years later, he's brought back into this same prison. And then he's executed, he's executed by Nero. Now, why is this important to know? It's because here's the deal. In the letter of Philippians, and I think this is in your notes. I might be going out a little bit out of order. The word joy is used 16 times in a four-chapter book. Now, 
if I don't know the backstory and I don't know the context, I can't understand the type of joy Paul is talking about. Because I'm telling you, if I'm in prison knowing I'm two years away from dying and the church I'm writing to is being persecuted, I'm talking about a very, very different joy than I would be talking about if my life was okay. Does that make sense? It's kind of the, I like to use this example. If I were to, uh, if I were to be talking in a sermon and I was to say something like, life can be like a car stuck in traffic on I-35 at rush hour. Now, even to us, I've got to interpret that because I could, I could mean several things. I could, I could mean, you know, life is just moving slow or life is busy. I could mean we're all, all of us are in a hurry to get nowhere fast. I could mean any of those three things. But now what happens if I put that in a capsule Okay? And it is open 2,000 years down the road, and Austin is no longer a diverse Mecca in Texas, but rather it's just a farming community, and I-35 is clear. And somebody reads that, and they take that out of the historical context. Now they're going to be convicted about living life on a slower pace, and that's not what I meant at all. And so when we read things about joy and understand the historical backing of what's going on, we have to know that Paul is talking something, he's talking about something very different than you and I might think about when we think of joy. Does that make sense? Okay. So th- this feeds into how we are to understand those one-liners that, that Philippians is famous for. So um, let's go on to the common themes of Philippians. Paul is writing, here's something that's important to understand. Paul is writing to a people, okay? If you go back to the first part of chapter one, Paul is not writing just to a group of leaders. He's not writing to a person. He is writing to a people rather than a person. Now, why is that important? Because here's what that means. Through the rest of Philippians, every time you see the word you, you have to understand it in the plural. It would be Texan for y'all. Okay? Now, but think about this. That in and of itself brings a whole different meaning or a whole deeper meaning to what God started in you, he is faithful and just to complete. Doesn't it? We like to take that verse out and mean it and use it as an individual text about my own personal salvation. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is looking at a church collectively and saying, what God has started in you all in the city of Philippians, no matter how bad it gets, he is faithful and just to complete the mission he has called you to in that city. So my, my, my reason for saying that is not that that verse can't be used as a, as a salvation text, because here, here's the deal. Let, let's, let's be honest. If God is completing something in all of us, that means he has to be con- Completing something in each of us individualistically, right? I can't have a happy marriage in both, unless both me and Sarah are happy in our marriage, okay? So God is not completing a greater work in and through all of us if he isn't at the same time completing a work in each of us individually. Does that make sense? But my point in saying that is that the individual part is secondary, the collective part is primary. And so when we read the text, we need to understand the word you, not as something God might be just giving me individually, but something he might be speaking to me for the collective good of the people. That, does that make sense? Okay, I already said this last one. Uh, there's a consistent thread 
um, that Paul uses through the, uh, through the book, and it's the word joy, he uses it 16 times. Um, then the framework that Paul uses is if you go to the first chapter of the book, and then you go to the last chapter of the book, Paul gives some very, very heavy talk on this idea of church unity. Brandon brought it up a little bit last week. And so well, the reason we need to know that is because just as this is written in the plural, we have to understand that every single verse, every word, every text in this book, in some way or another, is coming from the idea or pointing towards the idea of the church being a unified body, not just an individual person. Then he has, he has three major concerns that he talks about. Brandon brought up this first one last week a little bit. The first one is integrity. To live a life worthy of the gospel and suffering. And, and what I mean by in, integrity, I don't, I don't necessarily mean just speaking the truth. But remember, Brandon brought up those two uh, ladies that Paul brings up. That if you're to read it on the surface, it almost looks like these ladies might be trying to split the church. But that's not what's going on. What these ladies are probably doing, are they're living a life that is inconsistent with the gospel they're preaching. Does that make sense? So they're saying one thing and living another way. It's almost like a man ordering a mocha. It just doesn't make sense. Are, are, are you with me? And so Paul is saying he is calling these people to this level of integrity to say, hey, what you say and what you preach must be, you like that, John? Must be backed up, must be backed up by the way you live. So you cannot be a people that claim to serve this God who came to tie a towel around his waist and serve people if you also are not sacrificing to serve people. It's, there's no integrity to that. And so he's saying you've got to be a people who don't just preach well but live well. There's got to be an integrity to that which you preach. The second one is posture. And he actually uses Jesus as, as this example. The church is never to be in a position of hierarchy. It's never to be in a position of power. In fact, if you look through the last 2,000 years of history, what we find is that every time the church either gets in bed with the government or gains a position of power, things go really, really bad for us. And Paul is saying, no, what our posture is to be to enemy and friend alike is that of serving out of humility of taking the lower road, of being humble. And then the other one is extremism. Paul talks a lot about, especially in chapters 3, about legalism and lawlessness, the two extremes that every single church since the beginning of time has wrestled with. And both of those add to this, this disunity in, in what Scripture means and what the gospel is. Okay, So then he concludes, I'm trying to kind of rush through this, and then he concludes with this idea of um, an exhortation for the church to live a Christ-centered life. In fact, um, he, he's basically saying that you cannot be a people of unity, full of joy, full of integrity, with the right kind of posture by just trying better. The only way to be this people in this very diverse city is to be a people who, who center everything around the person and work of Jesus. And then the purpose of this book, the reason Paul wrote it, is for a reminder and a call to partnership with the gospel. See, here's what we need to understand about this idea of Paul being a great church planner. When Paul was planting churches, and what church meant back then was not setting up a group of people that had a platform so somebody could talk to them. That didn't define church. Church never meant showing up on a Sunday so you could hear somebody speak to you. That had an element 
But when people talked about Paul being a, plan, a church planner, what they automatically understood was that Paul, when Paul went from city to city, he was laying the foundation of these alternative societies within the greater society. A society in which everybody would live very differently from the, the common culture. They would live countercultural in the midst of this culture in such a way that it would draw all men to Christ. They would literally be this city on a hill. And the responsibility of that rested on everybody who considered them or considered it their church. It was not about one man. It was about partnership for God's glory, for the gospel in the city. Okay, does that make sense? So I kind of want to lay that out a little bit as we start hitting these, these, these one-liners. So let's go ahead and start with Philippians 4, 10 through, tw- uh, 10 through 12. I think it's going to be up on the screen. Paul says this. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to show it. All Paul's doing here is he's drawing a little bit of a distinction of it's one thing to say you're concerned about somebody. It's another thing to act like it when the opportunity is there. Okay? And so Paul is saying, I know you have been concerned for me. I know you have said you've been concerned for me. Your letters prove it. Your prayers prove it. But now that you've had the opportunity to show your concern for me in prison, you've taken that opportunity. Not that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. Here's what's really important to understand. Brandon uses this a lot, that the scriptures say that we are to learn to do good, right? It's not something that just comes natural. This idea of contentment is the same, is the same thing. I mean, if you look at the, the life of Paul, the shipwrecks, the beatings, the stonings, the, you, right? He, he has a history of God using these circumstances to teach him for him to learn to be content. It, just, it doesn't just doesn't just come. I know what it is to have little and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned, this is, uh, the reason I took this translation is because the way it words it right here. I have learned the secret of being well fed. We all kind of know that secret, right? We know how to be well fed. But then he goes on. He's not looking for an escape route for the rest of it. And you could add, I have learned the secret of going hungry. That's a weird way to say that. That's not a book that sells well. I have learned the secret of being hungry. He's not saying I'm not, I'm not looking to escape this. But there's something else I see that lies much deeper than just me being hungry. I've learned the secret of having plenty. And I've learned the secret of being in need. Paul's not looking for escape in any of these situations. So what Paul is talking about, this idea of being content is a change of perspective. I think that's in your notes. Here's what Paul has realized. He's not standing back looking at the ups and downs of his life, seeing this part of my life is the part of life I want to stay in. And then this part of life is the part of life I want to get out of. Paul has transcended that. and He's got this change of perspective and he realizes that all circumstances are primarily God's training ground to teach us to be satisfied in Christ alone, not the circumstance we find ourselves in. Because we've said this over and over at this church. God's greatest good for us is not our promotion. It's not our job. It's not even our financial well-being. God's greatest good for us is that you and I would be made in the image of God. In the image of his son. 
And so Paul is saying, I've got that. And the only way to step one step closer to that is to realize that in the good and in the bad, God is teaching me or he is stripping me of things to make me realize that my complete satisfaction needs to be found in Christ. Or this whole mission thing and this whole church thing doesn't work. And he goes on in Philippians 4.13, which is one of those texts. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The, in your notes, the all things, I don't think I gave you very much room there, but it's, it's the all things required to live and sustain a life of mission is the result of our focus on the work and person of Jesus. The all things required to live and sustain a life of mission is the result of our focus on the work and person of Jesus. Now, here's how we know that. Here's how we know this is what Paul is talking about instead of a marathon in the year 2012. is because that text is not absent from the text that preceded it. That text is specifically written right where it's written because it has to be nailed down, not only in the verses that come before it and after it, but in the entire book and the entire scheme of the story of Israel fulfilled through Jesus to create a people for himself. Paul is talking about, so what Paul is saying, in other words, is I can live a Christ-centered life whether I'm in need or have plenty. I can live a life marked deeply by joy whether hungry or well-fed. I can stay grounded and fueled by the gospel as one with the church, and it is not dependent on having plenty or being in need. Those are the all things that Paul is talking about. That I can be grounded as one in the church, full of joy, on mission, in the diverse city I am in. And it has nothing to do with what I have or don't have. Picking up in verse 14, Paul says this. In any case... It was kind of you to share my distress. You Philippians indeed know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs more than once. Not that I seek the gift. Here's, here's what I want you to understand. Okay, let me, let me backpedal here a little bit and talk a little bit more about the church. This was not a wealthy church. Remember, they didn't have a big religious following. So this monotheistic idea was very uh, challenging to the culture. And so you're not going to get the big funders to show up on your Sunday service. You with me? Very, very uh, financially weak church. And so Paul is saying, you have sacrificed. So when we understand giving, we're not talking about they tithed well to Paul. In order to give to Paul, they had to sacrifice greatly. They had to give out of their lack. They had to give out of their need in order for Paul to have. Does that make sense? Okay, so then he goes on and he says this, but I seek the profit that accumulates to your account. Go down in the first line of notes right under, right under that. Here's what Paul is saying. All that is sacrificed to live on mission is actually to your benefit. All that you have sacrificed, all the ways you have sacrificed, all the things you have given up, To live on mission is actually to your benefit because it is in the mission that God begins to change us. 
There's a lot of people, I learned this this last week, and there's a lot of people who have this idea that I've got to change first and then I can go on mission. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. What has made you the church you are is that you have sacrificed all you have to be on mission. And in that sacrifice, as you are on mission, God has begun to make you into a church that reflects the image of his son. I have been paid in full and have more than enough. I am fully satisfied now that I have received from Ephroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God, here's another one of those lines that's taken out of context a lot. And my God will fully satisfy every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Now, why is that taken out of context? That, that simple word need. Okay? We live in a culture that need is something very different than what need might have been then. And here, here's what we have to know. Paul is a man in prison on his way to death row. He's dealing with a church that has no financial resources. He's not talking about that God would rescue them from that and make them wealthy. Are you with me? Here's what Paul's talking about. And this is in your notes. All that is required to live on mission, Paul is saying that we have these needs that keep us on mission. That's the need he's talking about. All that is required to live on mission is supplied by the one you are on mission with. When we realize that our full calling is to be on mission with Christ, with each other in the city, what we begin to realize is our circumstances or our socioeconomic status or what have you is not the supplied means to be on mission, but it is God who supplies it so we can freely continue to sacrifice to stay on this mission because Christ is the one who supplies what we need to be on that mission. Now let's chat a little bit and then we'll close. This last, uh, this last just a few days ago, me and a few people from the church, Brandon Gregory, Luis, um, my wife, and, and a couple other people, we went to, uh, we went to this open house to, to visit these, this organization that does transitional living and low-cost living, um, uh, low-cost housing uh, for, for people in need. And it was, it was an amazing experience. We had a really good time. Um, but one day, uh, the, at the beginning of the conference, somebody asked a, asked a question about volunteers, which is something we... We do a lot. We volunteer a lot, right? And they were very confused about how volunteers are supposed to serve the city and not force their own agenda on people. Um, and, and because this is just the history of our church, I just raised my hand and asked if I could speak into that. I did, and uh, it went really well. But what unfortunately happens is when you do that, people want to talk to you more. And I'm, I am an introvert, okay? I don't like to talk to people very much. Um, I mean, in fact, after now, I'm done. I'm going to go home and lock myself in a room. Um, and, and so, and plus not only that, I'm, I'm on a trip with somebody. I want to spend time with them. And so, so we are, uh, we, we get out to start touring these facilities and, and this guy walks up to me, um, and didn't seem to care that I was with a group already. He wanted to pull me aside and begin to talk to me. And so, uh, we began, we began to talk about what we do as a church and what we have done as a church. And, um, and I really was trying to figure out how can I be nice and get out of this? So I said, my name is Trey Pruitt and, um, <laughs> And uh, let me just, and, and here's the deal. Here, here's the deal. We've got a book out that you can go home and read for yourself and, and that will tell you kind of what our church has been about and what, what we aim to be about. And he said, okay, what's the name of the church? And he wrote it. He starts to write it down. I said, it's Barefoot Church by Brandon Hatmaker. He goes, you're Barefoot Church? Nope, and Trey Pruitt. And I go to a church <laughs> named, Austin, named Austin New Church. And this is just a book about the journey of that church. He goes, I've read that book. 
I said, well, good. Now you know the thing. And I start to walk, walk away. And I think I've escaped. And I'm, I'm with the group. And then he comes up and he puts his hand on my back and kind of stops me. And he introduces his wife to me, mid-40s-year-old woman. And he, he, he never got that my name was Trey Pruitt because he goes, "Hun, this is Barefoot Church. I kid you not. She shivered and goes, oh, and ran her arms down my shoulder like I was some. Now, here's the, here's the deal. You guys have heard this story about how much I hate oil. The one thing I hate more than that is the idea of Christian celebrity. Okay? I hate it. And she actually said, you guys are Christian celebrities. And it was the first time in a long time I wanted to hit a woman. But I really did and thought it would be just I didn't. I didn't hit a woman. You guys are just odd like, did he? Um, and so, and... Uh, um, Made me feel really bad for Brandon when he goes places. But, but it was really, was really weird. And here's what was so weird about that. Something in the back of her mind and in her husband's mind said that all that Austin New Church has done and been in the last four years was because of me or Brandon or, or actually Trey or Brandon. Um, and when people do that, I kind of want to, now I want to talk to them because I, I want to set them down. And I want to explain to them, first of all, not what, but, but who the church is. And I, I want to begin to tell them the stories of those of you who have wrestled through the uncertainties and the ups and downs and the, and the letdowns of things like adoption and foster care and yet remained content in all that Christ is for you. I want to tell the stories of those of you who gave up material things or lifestyles because you really just, even if you didn't know how, what you knew is you couldn't have this lifestyle. You couldn't have these extra five TVs to be who you needed to be for the poor. So, so you, you gave it up. I want to tell the stories of those of you who decided to move into low-income apartments so you could be with the poor. I want to tell the stories of those of you in the church who have lost your job and instead of let it steal your joy, it, it was used to nail you down even deeper into a life of relationship and service to this city. I want to tell the stories of those of you who have struggled through marriage and refused to do it alone and surrounded yourself and submitted yourself to your community and came out on the other side, not with a story of despair, but of hope and joy. See, I don't want to tell the story of a church founded in AD 62 by Paul. I want to tell the story of a church in a weird city like Austin full of a people that are marked by the very things that Paul is encouraging his people. Do we wrestle with contentment here? Absolutely. Are we going to be perfect? Not at all. Do we still wrestle with individualism and materialism? You bet. Every day. But when I see people want to give credit to me or to Brandon or to Trey or, or maybe even John sometimes, um, then I, 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 I want to set them down and just say, you don't get it. You don't get it because I get to be part of a people who have not been committed to a process, who have not been committed to, to just being a big church, but they have been committed to allowing the Holy Spirit to do what he wants to do in their lives, and they have followed hard after that. That's the story I want to tell them. And so when I think of the last four years, 
I'm nothing but encouraged about this new door that we're walking through. I'm nothing but thrilled to this new journey that we have together, that we're going to take. And and here's what I know. Some of us, we're going to be challenged in ways we never thought possible, right? That's, That's going to happen because we have been in the last four years. And we have thought at one point, we'll never be challenged more than this. Well, it's coming. Some of us will be asked by the Holy Spirit to move into parts of the city that we worked our whole lives to get out of. And we're like, dang, I got to go back. But now we're doing it with a sense of mission. Some of us will learn to wrestle again with uncertainties that we thought we had gotten over. Some of us will get a new vision for Dove Springs. But here's the thing. We've been highlighting Dove Springs, but here's here's what else is going to happen. Some of you are going to get a much needed and renewed vision for this place right here in, in this part of the city. And here's what's going to happen. In another four years, one of us are going to be standing up here and we're going to be reflecting on the same stories, not because we're some awesome people, but because we're a group of people who have just decided to submit to, to be content in, number one, Jesus, but the people we call Austin Lee Church. So I just want to say today, I love you guys. I thank you for the last four years, and uh, I couldn't think of a better people to be on this journey with. Let's pray.